Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, and today I have great news for the listening audience. We have a co-host. We have an extraordinary co-host. It is my great pleasure to welcome as co-host Cindy Yu. Cindy, you will remember, has actually been on the program before, uh, but today she is joining to make sure that this podcast gets just a little bit more professional and capable. Uh, Cindy is the broadcast editor at The Spectator in the UK, if you don't remember that, and she also hosts the magazine's Chinese Whispers podcast, which I'm sure you all have listened to. Um, Cindy was born in Nanjing, China, and she read politics, philosophy, and economics at the University of Oxford, and also read for a Master of Science in Contemporary Chinese Studies. Um, She's a frequent commentator. You probably all have heard her on the BBC, Channel 4, GB News, and the like. Most importantly, it means that we finally have someone on this podcast who knows something about China. So, Cindy, welcome as co-host to the Pacific Century today. Thank you so much for having me, Misha. Now, now a bit scared to talk, given that no, amazing introduction. <laughs> b- believe me, the, it's the only audience, going downhill from here. <laughs> the audience is eager; they they cannot wait for you. Actually, if you would to introduce our fantastic guest today. Yeah, let let me do that. Um, now, our guest today is Holly Snape, who is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Glasgow. She did her PhD at the University of Bristol and has spent time at Peking and Tsinghua universities. Now, her current research focuses on the Chinese Communist Party and civil society in the People's Republic of China. And she has previously looked at Chinese political discourse and grassroots non-governmental organizations. Holly, thank you so much for joining me and Misha on the uh, Pacific Century. Hi, Cindy. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Misha, too. Now, I'm going to take most advantage of my guest host privileges and start by asking you, um, by start by asking you a question. Um, I think I'm right in saying that your current research is looking at the relationship between the CCP and the government. And I think for many outsiders, that distinction is not so clear. I've certainly been, when I was writing, when I've, I've been asked by editors to refer to the CCP more in my articles than just the government, as if the two are interchangeable. So perhaps you can start by explaining why those terms are not interchangeable. Thanks very much, Cindy. Um... Yeah, this is a really complex, complicated issue. And basically, one of the reasons that I think for such a long time we've kind of not thought about the difference between the two or the different roles that each play is that we've used this kind of heuristic of the party state. And in some ways, that makes a lot of sense because the party is so intertwined in the in the state or in the government that it is sometimes really difficult to kind of figure out the difference between the two. And it might might seem almost like counterintuitive to try and separate them, to first disaggregate and look at their different roles, Um, especially at a time when when what we're seeing in practice is kind of the the government trying to devour parts of the state in a way. So like in 2018, we saw this quite... um, different it broke from former practice right this institutional government reform is is quite a um common thing every few years this uh the state kind of undergoes uh 
structural reform, right? And in 2018, instead of it just being a government reform package, it was a party and government reform package. And so what we saw was actually the, the party in some substantive ways kind of taking over parts of the job that previously was kind of delegated to government. So things like the party took direct management of civil servants and things. So it might sound really kind of um, counterintuitive, like why would you want to separate the two, especially at a time when the two are so much more intertwined than before. And of course, the thing is that we can't understand how they're more intertwined than before um, or what the implications of that are for practical policy if we don't kind of think about the, the different roles that they have in practice. Um, so yeah, there, there are really, I think, clear kind of different roles that we can dis disaggregate for the party and the state. And my work has sort of recently been looking at that. And can you talk a little bit about those roles and what those different roles are, respectively? Yeah, I can attempt it. Um, so, so most recently I've been looking at, and actually my work for a long time has looked at grassroots um, non-governmental organisations, right? Grassroots social organisations is like the legal term. Um, and so if we disaggregate party and state, then we can see this really clear trend over the past kind of decade, much, much clearer actually in the last year. But for, first of all, for the the state to attempt to place all social organising, so all non-profit organisations under in, under strict government management, right, under strict government regulation, to get rid of all of the space for any sort of social organising that's outside of the um, government regulatory system. And then by doing that, to make social organisations into legitimate spaces for the party to build itself. And so we can see this happening in practical ways, right? First of all, um, you've got to kind of know a bit of the background of this this whole kind of policy sector right but I try and put it quite um briefly like the status quo in the past was always that there was this gray space for social organizing outside of government regulation right um and so it's always been since the 90s the case that if you wanted to set up a social organization as a as a Chinese citizen then you had to apply to register to the government um, to register your social organisation with them. Um, this isn't about sort of gaining, you, you might think, well, you know, that's that makes sense, right? In other countries, in lots of systems, people have to, if you want to set up an NGO, you want preferential tax treatment, you want to take on government contracts, of course you have to register with the government. But it's not about that, it's a, a much more basic step, right? It's practising your, your right, which is in the Chinese constitution, to associate, right, to set up any kind of social organisation. So it's long been the rule that you have to get permission from government by registering. Only it's also long been the case that that rule has not really been implemented in a systematic way. It's always been kind of sporadic or selective. There have been like crackdowns here and there on individual organisations. And what we've seen most recently in the past year is a campaign that's come very much from the top. And if you want, I can explain why I think that, um, to systematically root out the very soil that those organizations exist in. And that means that, so what they've done in the past to be able to, to kind of um, 
to be able to operate even without government registration as a, as a kind of legitimate status is things like uh, associate themselves with universities, right? Affiliate affiliate themselves to universities so that they have access to space to meet and uh, university staff who might be able to lobby the government on policy, right? They've been able to affiliate themselves with registered social organisations so that they can, um, so that they can get access to a bank account, they can get media coverage, right? Only this new campaign has brought in both party and state organs. So you've got this central propaganda organization, the central organization department, and a whole bunch of uh, government agencies like Ministry of Education, People's Government, uh, the, sorry, the uh, People's Bank of China, who are all being told, you must not affiliate you know, as universities to non-registered social organizations. And the propaganda department telling you, you must not report on non-registered social organizations. And so this creates a space that's basically either you register with government or you aren't able to find all of those ways to sustain your activities that you were able to find in the past. And what that creates is a government regulated system of nonprofit entities that can then become legitimate spaces for the party to build itself up in, in like at every stage of the government regulatory system, like the government regulatory process. So when so the government, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> like, so, so Holly, this is, uh, I, I want to jump in just to ask uh, again, for those of us who are, who are not as you know familiar with the, the way that the different elements of Chinese political society, for lack of a better term, interact. So first, it seems that you, there, there are three players that you're talking about. One is the party, one is the state, meaning the government, and one is is society. And, and in a paper that you wrote a few years ago, a really interesting academic paper called Finding a Place for the Party, you talked about understanding, actually about disaggregating the party from government, not talking about simply a party state as, as we did to lump it all together, and then actually talked about the the interests of the party versus, or or at least potentially in distinction from the interests of the state. But we're so used to thinking that they're the same thing. So can you can you talk a little bit about what interests would the party have that are not the interests of the government, which it still controls? Right. That's a, an excellent question. Um, so this, to take a step back, right, we also have to think first about the, it, about the party itself, right? What is the party and what are its priorities at any one time, right? And so that, I think, can change. Um, and like in a really kind of general um what we see over the uh, trend over the past kind of 10 years is for an increasing politicization of all kinds of all areas or fields of policy work right? under Xi Jinping under Xi Jinping and but this I think it's quite it's almost a consensus now I think mm -hmm. um and this kind of I also have sort of clear empirical evidence I guess in the work that I've done that shows that this started before Xi Jinping, or just before in some of my work, mm -hmm. just before Xi Jinping came into office as general secretary. But um, so if you think about, um, there's always been a tension between, you know, the priorities of the party and the priorities of a professional kind of, you know, a specific um, 
portfolio of a specific government ministry, right? And so if you take, for example, the, the um, policy area that I was just talking about, the person who's in charge of the um, regulation of NGOs, who's in the Civil Affairs Bureau, um, the, the kinds of, um, the, the way that he's told to do his job, basically, um, is kind of changing under this new set of rules that has been initiated under Xi Jinping, right? And so, so, um, so the one of the things that has really gone under-researched, almost under the radar, under Xi Jinping, and I say this started just before Xi Jinping came into office, is the establishment of this sort of vast, comprehensive initiative to build up a set of party regulations they're called intra-party regulations and i think that might be why people don't pay them such attention because they think they're just about internal party matters and one of the things that's happened since about 2016 is that it, this intra-party regulatory system so this is kind of party-like legislation and codified rules that stipulate on how party behaves inside of government and other entities this this set of rules has been first of all built up into a system so you've always in the past had party regulations but they've always been quite patchy and they've kind of focused on just internal party matters so this is a system that's mutually reinforcing and it's being designed so this was kind of announced in 2016 in a in a party document that one of the core components of this intra-party regulatory system was actually to regulate the to re regulate the relationship between party and non-party entity. So a relationship between party and a government actor, for example. And so if you take that really specific example of the Ministry of Civil Affairs, for example, um, in that ministry, there is what's called a, a party group, right, a danzu. So a party group is a, a leading body that sits inside of any government agency all the way down to the county level. And you find these also in like centrally managed SOE, state-owned enterprises and things. Um, but their job and what, what they do, it's never been kind of codified before in the history of the party, right? And in 2015, this was put into, it was put on paper, it was codified, and we have access to that. And so, of course, we don't have something to compare that with because there wasn't a set of rules before, but this, this set of rules on what those party entities do inside of government agencies, that was amended again in 2019. And so we can see clearly how the role of these party leading party groups inside of government, how they're supposed to and when they're supposed to influence government policy, you know, when they're supposed to, if you like, put on their government hats and think about things from the, the kind of what's called the professional kind of or specialist kind of um, you know, basically their portfolio as a government ministry, and when they're supposed to have their party hat on, right? And so um, so, for example, what it's, it's now codified in these rules that what they're supposed to do is show their clear-cut political stance. And so when you asked about, you know, what are the interests of the party, what are the interests of the professional, you know, the person who's thinking about this specific policy um, portfolio and how to best manage it, right? When the people who are making 
top kind of important decisions are told that they must um, demonstrate their clear-cut political task, then this um, has potentially like a direct bearing on the way that they then go out, go on, go on and perform that task. And we can see this kind of integrated throughout in the um, throughout policy documents. So be- before I turn it back over to Cindy for um, intelligent questions, let me let me ask a sort of really basic a basic question, which is where does the average Chinese interact with the party versus the state? I mean, if you're if you're in business, if you're uh, in education, if you're you know I don't know you're doing a, a cultural activity. I'm just wondering, as as the as the party, as you've described it, has has codified, formalized, and expanded its roles. Um, does it interact with this with the society more, or is that still mediated through the state? Both, I think, is the answer to that. And increasingly, so the party is, I think, doing this is actually one of the reasons that I think it's important to disaggregate. Right. So the party's doing two things at once, if you like. It's both building up its ability to work from within the state, and it's reliant on the state in many ways, right? And when I give you the, gave you the example of um, uh, um, the party relying on the state to implement its party building inside of NGOs, right? It's doing that at each, each step of the government process of regulating NGOs. So for example, when the government sends in third party evaluators to evaluate the performance of NGOs, then it um, it has to increasingly use these party building indicators as, a, as an increasingly weighty um, indicator to decide the, um, the rating of the NGO that it's evaluated, right? Um, and so the party in that way is really reliant on the state doing its job to regulate these NGOs. This is um, so it's the, the party is only able to build in those organizations if the state is doing each step of the regulatory process, right? Um, at the same time, though, the party is trying to figure out ways to increasingly build its cells inside of different types of organizations, so social organization, enterprises. Um, and non-profit organizations right um and these are like mostly kind of party cells which are primary level party organizations um and so they come from within the organization often or usually that's the hope right if your organization has three party members inside of it then it should have a cell it should build a party cell if it doesn't have three members inside of it, the party's increasingly trying, trying to find ways to kind of create kind of cells that cut across different organisations that kind of borrow party members from, you know, they borrow, they're kind of a, an overarching umbrella kind of cell. Um, and so this is something that the party's kind of trying to do right now, is, is finding ways to do that right now. Um, and so where would the ordinary citizen come into well I guess it depends what you're doing in your daily life you know is it are you seeking services from an NGO um you know how does somehow the party's kind of um yeah but at the same time you know the party's going via both state and society I think if that's clear (laughs) 
And Holly, you're, you're talking a lot about, you know, things that are changing at the moment. So I just wondered, you know, how much of this, um, we've already mentioned President Xi's name, you know, how much of this growing, would, would it be, first of all, I guess, would it be fair to say that this is a growing power of the party over government in relation to the government under the uh, current, uh, under the last few years? Um, and, you know, what happens, as Misha says, when those interests uh, clash, is it the party that comes out on top, increasingly so? Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, generally, so basically, the I think you're right, the party is increasingly kind of in different ways, um, gaining greater kind of clout over the government, right? This is not a separate government. I've got to make that clear. Like, this is not a kind of independent government. It's, I think um, I've got a responsibility to sort of make that really clear. You know, it's always been the government of the party, it's always been, you know, established by the party. But for example, a civil servant who is not a party member had not necessarily always been under kind of such strict demands, direct demands sometimes from the party. And now that's that's much more the case increasingly mm. in very substantive kind of traceable ways, right? So things like the establishment of this National Supervisory Commission, right? Which um, there's some great work on um, and it's really an area to watch, right? The, that is, sorry, the establishment of a supervisory commission that's, that, that can reach into the government and that can monitor um, any civil servant. Whereas before, you know, the only the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection that was able to kind of um, monitor and, and regulate the work of party members, but not civil servants. And so these are really, I mean, that's not my specific field that I focus on, but, you know, there are lots of specific substantive um, bits of empirical evidence that, you know, the party is increasingly encroaching upon the state and kind of becoming much more front and centre when it comes to making um, policy choices. And I have to just jump in really quickly I, uh, to add on. Sorry, Cindy, I just wanted to ask, and is there resistance from the state? Gosh, that's a, that's a, a tremendously difficult question to answer. <laughs> so the thing is, I mean, because we're talking about this really on a like macro kind of, on a really abstract level in a way, but at the same time, this is playing out in really granular way as well. Right. It, you know, it's playing out on a granular level. It's playing out in everyday um, operations of the, the way that the government operates. Right. And so I always like to kind of um, to, to, to remind us that people have agency. Right. It's, it's never the case that, that somebody just entirely loses their, their agency and the, 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 the ability to choose. Right. And so the it's a. While the trends that I'm seeing in the work that I do are really increasingly kind of um, very much, not only is the party front and centre of all of, of much of government work, but Xi Jinping is front and centre of government work. And I do think that's the case. And, I, you know, this is based on kind of, um, I'd really like to give you an example of what I think that is. Um, Please. So but without kind of losing the, the thread of your original question, because it was such a good question. <laughs> um, so it's currently the case because of this creation of this intra-party regulatory system, that any type of substantive policy document made by any kind of party organisation 
it has to go through a process of review and filing, right? This review and filing system is, I think, tremendously important because what it reviews for is whether or not the policy that you're making, and this is party policy documents, right, is compliant with Xi Jinping thought on socialism of Chinese characteristics for a new era. Whether it's compliant, there are other things that it has to be reviewed for compliance with, right? It's also supposed to be reviewed for compliance with the, the, the government, the state constitution and law, which is a whole other uh, story because, you know, whether or not the party actually has the, the power to do constitutional review, right, is a, is a whole, you know, that's supposed to sit with the MPC, the National People's Congress, right? Um, but this process of review, people are now sitting at desks all over the country reviewing digitised documents to see whether or not they are compliant with Xi Jinping thought, essentially. And so when you say, is there any pushback? I mean, you know, these are, these are actual processes, people making decisions. You know, somebody has to sit in their office and decide, is your policy compliant with Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era? Or is it, you know, is there a possibility that it's not compliant? Um, so it's a bit like putting in a paper for an academic review, right? You, you know, you've got reviewer one and reviewer two, and they might come back to you with a kind of feedback and say, you're going to have to change this because it's not compliant with Xi Jinping thought. Um, and so in that area, you know, is there any, is there any room for not trying to be compliant or, or perform compliance? Uh, I think probably no. Um, mm. In other areas, you know, when it comes to sort of making a decision about whether or not to register a, an NGO, you know, that's a highly now increasingly politicised. Is there room to kind of push back? In the run-up to the 20th Party Congress, I don't think so. Um, and again, like I can give you kind of reason for that if you want. <laughs> yeah. Um, Holly, how much of um, this is about President Xi Jinping himself, by which I mean, obviously, the theory is called Xi Jinping thought. Um, He's the man at the top of the party, the general secretary. But is it a personal power grab or is the party what he is serving as well? Because the reason I ask is this fascinating uh, piece in Foreign Affairs by Professor Rana Mitter a while ago about the third resolution at the sixth plenum, where he said, yes, presidency is important in the document, but actually the party comes up even more frequently than presidency's name. So I just wonder, you know, this this power grab, is it a personal thing or is it actually in service of the party as this organisation in general? Um, great question. Also, great piece by Rana Mitter. <laughs> yeah, I don't always read anything by Rana Mitter. Um, so, I think the the actual. I think both because, and that's not a cop out. Like the relationship between Xi Jinping and the party, I think, has changed. Right, the relationship between the general secretary and the party has changed, um, and it's changed in. I mean, the the system that I just talked about. Of, tra- of kind of checking systematically whether documents comply with Xi Jinping thought or not. That's a way of changing the relationship between the general secretary and the whole of the party. Because um, all the provinces have to comply with Xi Jinping thought in their policy making. Like all the provinces have to comply with the centre in their policy making. And Xi Jinping is core of the centre. And so he's, you know, the relationship between Xi Jinping as general secretary and the and the party itself has changed. And so, yes, I agree that the um, this is about the party 
as well as it's about Xi Jinping, it's about empowering the party. But who is the party? Um, you know, party members are not all equal. <laughs> like, and so the this so-called thought of Xi Jinping, I think, is, you know, it I think the idea is that this this is the part this represents the party. Like this is what's in the best interest of the party. Can can I at that point then how how much and I think this is something, of course, you guys are in the UK and I'm I'm sitting here in Washington, DC. And I think DC is struggling. A, a little bit with the, and, and quite frankly, it's a fear, I think, uh, of the question of the return of ideology. Um, you know, we were very happy in 1989 to say ideology is done. It's the end of history. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, and I personally find, and having done you know, Soviet studies, hence the Misha as a nickname, Soviet studies back in the day, um, <laughs> I find this question, we, we reveal little bits and pieces all through the, through the podcast. I like it, Misha, I like I, it. I, I, um, I, I find the question of ideology fascinating um, because for so long in America, people would say, no, you know, the China's not ideological. They're, they're opening up their society and it's going to be a capitalist system. And yeah, you've got the party, but they don't really believe and it seems to me the evidence of the Xi Jinping years and, and maybe even before that is that certainly she seems to be a believer, but I'm also, you know, open to trying to understand how ideology isn't important. But you mentioned before, Holly, Xi Jinping thought on uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, which extends to everything. There's Xi Jinping thought on diplomacy, Xi Jinping thought on this and that. Um, how important in your view as you're looking at the way in which the party is changing its relationship to the state? and society. How important is ideology? Meaning for policymakers, how seriously do they have to take it? How do, do they have to relearn how to understand ideology in the context of great power competition? Um, gosh, that's a, that's a massive question. <laughs> um, a great one. We asked the question. Um, I, I like what you said before is that you said it's a, a hard to answer question. That's what we do. We ask the question. That's our tagline now. So first of all, I, I wouldn't, I would very much disagree with the idea that ideology ever went away. Good, good. Um, I would also disagree with the idea that all ideology can go away. Um, Cause I think that everyone exists within ideology right it just um it's, i think it's that's gramscian but i didn't do ppe yeah, at Oxford, so yeah, i'm, I'm going to leave that to cindy to tell us about yeah sorry sorry for like dragging us into the weeds um but so does okay i i'm gonna um take it from where you talk about you know whether or not it means that that people in government need to relearn or to to figure out you know what what the ideology it you know what what Xi Jinping understands to mean the party's ideology right um and I say this is actually kind of the crux of what what it means to be institutionalizing the need for compliance with Xi Jinping thought right throughout this whole system of legislative like documents um if you institute the need for compliance with Xi Jinping thought but we don't really know exactly what Xi Jinping thought is or it's a it's supposed to be like a dynamic body of work right which is always developing because it's developing in interaction with the context that China finds itself right it's interacting with policy need and things then what you have to do is be constantly reading and digesting and studying and thinking about and learning about the 
thoughts of Xi Jinping, right? And so this is really, you know, when we, we hear a lot about, oh, Xi Jinping made a speech, uh, Xi Jinping gave important instructions, right? And sometimes, you know, we might think, well, why should we care? But the mm. point is to be able to do your job, to be competent in, um, you know, policymaking that is compliant with the basic demands of Xi Jinping thought, then you need to be literate in, you know, what he's been saying. Um, and, and I so, guess the and very th- acts of um, repeating it and reiterating it and learning it, you know, that's a compliance model itself you know it's the party exercising power just through making you regurgitate everything as well isn't it precisely exactly exactly and so it's like yeah this is the way of governing the governors right it's a um by making them do that because you have to be doing it constantly otherwise you can't keep up you can't come across as being it's like the grammar that we use to speak in mm-hmm. right if you don't know the grammar you can't interact and you can't make your policies and things and so yeah it kind of weaves it into the very behavior i think people talk about often ask about you know whether people believe or not and the thing is i I wouldn't discount the idea that there are people who do believe strongly um but i also wouldn't discount the idea that there are people who don't believe or don't believe that this is the way to take the party forward right but it sort of doesn't matter it in a way, because you have to behave like you believe. And increasingly also, you know, the institution, the, um, sorry, the incentive structures inside the party, you know, the way that you get assessed, the way that personnel choices are made is increasingly kind of latched onto this this, um, idea of whether or not you're displaying a a so-called clear cut political stance. Um, And I even, you know, I even wonder, sorry, Cindy. No, no, Holly, I was just going to, you know, wanted to talk to you a bit about your other parts of your research as well, which is mainly on the civil society bit. Um, and, you know, from people that I talk to, uh, people, it's, it's often a, a thought that in the early noughties, civil society had a bit more freedom. Um, and you've suggested that yourself um, by saying that now they have to jump through more governmental hoops, party hoops in order to get registered. So I just wondered if you agreed with that as well. So that it's not just the governors being governed, there's also the people who had relative freedom under the early years of, I guess, reform and opening, have also felt that tightening of the leash uh, in the last few years as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um this is a really so the 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 part of kind of um this sort of non-profit sector that i focus on most is the grassroots kind of part or this is what i started out researching as a as a phd student i mean like 2011 2012 and back in those days it was still okay you could still survive if you weren't registered and for some organizations they chose not to register in fact the kind of the way that the policy was then um it was sometimes in local areas and in different localities. It was actually in the interests of both the organizations and the government if you didn't register, because there was this like limit on um, the number of organizations that could do the same thing, you know, that could focus on, say, um, people living with HIV in one area. And they might want to, they might want, you know, more expertise to be able to draw on in the government. And so you long had this situation where you could get away with not registering like you could you could be quite active and operate I mean of course this warped these organizations development but it you know it didn't stop people from developing organizations and doing things you know even having media coverage and things of their being able to kind of communicate with their local constituencies and kind of 
And that is all the this latest kind of attempt. I mean, this um, this has been happening kind of systematically for a long time. But this kind of intensive kind of campaign last year to crack down on all of these ways that those organizations were able to to thrive, um, that has it's changed in a way it's changed changed the game i guess um mm. because it's made it's put such a, a a much heavier onus on actually registering like you basically it's trying to force you to either register with government or to be unable to and, survive yeah and, and when when you register do the government or the party there i go again do they require you to have certain party political notions or is it more of a self-censorship thing do they think that it matters what they say how they say it because well, let's be clear that the organizations we're talking about as you mentioned is you know ones that are campaigning on hiv or environmental issues they're not necessarily directly political but do they feel like they have to be more treading within the party lines in order to get registered right so yeah so the the process of registration has always been a really key like point in the kind of relationship between the the um these nonprofit organizations and the government it's always been like really really difficult to register for some types of organizations um and part of the reason for that is that there was always this requirement for a kind of a so-called professional supervisory agency right and so it's supposed to the you're supposed to find an agency that's willing to supervise your whatever sphere that you're working in so if say you're working on HIV you might go to the local health department if you're working on education go to the education department and say are you willing to sponsor my registration and that's a hurdle too far for a lot of organizations mm. um and it it's I think it's a it's a really common misconception that after the charity law came into force in 2016, that kind of monitor that that kind of uh, stipulates on this area of social organizing, that that was going to make it much easier for most social organizations to register. And what actually happened was um, it it made it, the, the law was supposed to, like there was a um, scholars and practitioners who work in this field were really hoping that it was going to kind of um, institutionalize all of these great kind of trial pilot schemes that had been going on all over, over the country for direct registration that got rid of that extra supervisor and that government agency that supervised you, right? And it didn't do that. Like the the, the charity law didn't do that but I think it's an it's commonly kind of thought that maybe it did and so it was easier for people to register and people to gain this kind of legitimacy but um but it, the the charity law didn't do that and so yeah it's I think depends on what field you're working in and whether or not you know that field is potentially deemed to be politically sensitive and this brings us right back full circle because if um, this the the task of the people who are making decisions about whether or not a social organization can be registered the people who are making decisions about whether or not essentially when it becomes increasingly difficult to survive as a social organization without being registered right and these are the gatekeepers when that task of deciding on registration in your sitting in a government office right in a locality when that becomes politicized which it has been 
politicized recently um in a, the most recent speech by the person in charge of this at, cent, at the central level in the civil affairs bureau civil affairs ministry sorry um says literally you are being political gatekeepers here right you have to uh, hold this political gate when you're doing your work in registering and ma managing social organizations when it's politicized then it becomes really important that they think about when they're doing this job or it becomes a part of their, their their thought process, I guess. Is this a politically okay? You know, can I register this NGO? Can I register this social organization? So at that at that point, let me jump in. Actually, we're getting towards the end, so I want to ask uh, a last substantive question, then one more question to wrap up. But to this point that you were just you were just making, then um, again, for people thinking about uh, the the future of the party, the future of China. What happens post Xi Jinping? Does does this revert? Does it unroll? Is this the new permanent normal for relations between the party and the state and society? What 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 would you you know what would you say to a policymaker who's trying to understand the evolution and the permanence of these changes? And then we have a final final question. Okay, um, yeah, another great question. So I think. Um, so it's possible that Xi Jinping goes on for a third term. We don't know, but he might. Um, it's, I guess it's probable. Um, what would happen if something else were to, like, if he wasn't to go on for a third term and say, for example, Li Ling's written a great piece about he might go on to be a, a, the chairman of the party. Um, but this institutionalization of kind of Xi Jinping thought this, you know, and there's enough of a body of kind of work on what Xi Jinping thought is now, for example, in the relationship between law and party regulations, right? He, he you know, he's clearly stated his position on kind of the role or at least the, the need for integration between party regulations and actual law, right? That the party regulations are a core component and therefore what is socialist rule of law? Right. He's, he's made kind of in some ways kind of quite clear on those things. And so these are things that have all been kind of um, integrated into the um, veins of the system, if you like. Um, and so in a way, I guess they are sort of sticky in that they might be difficult to unravel. But then also we don't know if something were to happen to Xi Jinping, where, you know, that's a, that's a really big question, whether this would last or whether it would, you know, the whole thing would um, would unravel or there'd be pushback against um, this increasing kind of encroachment of the party onto the, into the state, right? And so the, the answer is I don't have a good answer right. to that question. Again, we ask the questions you can't answer, but that, that was a great <laughs> answer, actually. And obviously a lot of it depends on how Xi Jinping eventually no longer is in mm -hmm. power um, or it, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, um, if you look back at the Soviet Union, obviously the cabal that um, displaced, that didn't displace, but the cabal that that inherited power after Stalin did very little overall to to relinquish the power of the party over over Russia. I mean, obviously there was de-Stalinization and Khrushchev, but those were also for, for domestic political purposes. So it could be the party decides all of this is great. You just take the Xi Jinping mm -hmm. thought out of the thought, but it's still... 
XX thought on, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics. So that's a great question that that would be fun to, to follow up and think about it at some point. But I do have a final question. Um, you worked in China, you worked, you, you researched there, obviously, and, and uh, Cindy um, mentioned that in your introduction, but you worked at the Central Compilation and Translation Bureau, which I'm assuming is now, is that government or party? It's, uh, it's party. It's party. Yeah. So, so it, my question it doesn't is exist anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. well, it kind, oh. kind of it does exist. I shouldn't say it like that. Anything it's been to do absorbed. with you? No. Hope, okay. Hope, no. Um, <laughs> I had to think about sorry, that. I'll let, you finish, I'll let you finish your question, Misha. Well, the question I had was, what was that like? What I mean, how many how many Westerners uh, have worked in a party? Bureau. What was it like? What did you do? Um, what did you face being both a Westerner, uh, a woman, um, you know, someone who's who's obviously not a party member? What, you know, uh, that's an experience that I don't think any of our uh, any of our listeners will have. So just tell us what it was like to work in the in the party, um, and whether we can trust you now. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So. This so the the compilation and translation bureau has got a long history and kind of um, it it is under it's directly managed by the central committee of wow. the communist party. Um, it's now the reason that I said it doesn't exist anymore is basically it's been subsumed under too much bigger like organisations. So the party history institute and the party literature institute and so i've been banging on today about um about party documents being so important but they are so important in the chinese political system right party documents that they have a whole system a literature institute right to to manage them and so the compilation and translation bureau has been subsumed under that so what it did um i mean historically like historically is it it translated the works of uh, Marx, Engels, people into Chinese, right? Then it started translating the works of Mao and people into other languages. Um, but what it did more recently, so in the kind of Huen era, is all kinds of... So it's like a, a translation bureau come think tank. Mm -hmm. And so it did a whole bunch of kind of really interesting research um, and sometimes like collaborative research with um, academics from all over the world who would come and like be facilitated to go and do research, like quite meaningful research, I think, in, in my view, um, on various elements of the development of kind of reform era China. And then the, the, this bureau itself was doing research on, say, for example, um, economic reform right, internationally, like political systems, internationally, they were researching, they were trying to, like, understand different systems and different options, right, that's what they did, kind of, when I um, learned about them, um, and what they do now is something very, very different, and so when I started working there, originally, because what, what the party used to do before Xi Jinping was, so under Hu Jintao, they would translate the works of Jiang Zemin, right, and so the party would be learning about the works of Jiang Zemin, not anything like with the with the kind of intensity that they're learning about Xi. But but now that Xi's in in office and it's all about learning Xi Jinping thought, the 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 role is very very different, right? It's all about translating the works of Xi Jinping. And so so something that I did, um, you know, I worked on the translation of the um, government work report um, 
on the translation of intra-party documents. And, and so you like, were accepted as, as a, I mean, how did it, first of all, how'd you get the job? I, I assume there wasn't like a job application, you know, for Western students. For Western students? Not for Western students, I guess for, um, well, it was an open job application. It was like you would apply for any other job, I guess. Well, you were already at a... Beijing studying at the time, weren't you? I was, so yeah, that's, I'm that's sorry. Why, yeah. Yeah. So I was, yeah, I was writing up my PhD thesis and I desperately needed a job. And I like So you basically <laughs> took a job away from some deserving Chinese candidate. No, it was for, <laughs> for the it party. Was, it was for an, uh, an English speaker. Oh, oh, okay. And, um, and and did they accept you? I mean, was it, um, what was it like? I mean, just, you know, sort of, uh, you're working in a party body, a party bureaucracy. What, what, what was that like? It was hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... Um, it was fascinating, actually, because I got to see a lot of things that I can't talk about. <laughs> um, I, that raises I'm... so many more questions, Holly. <laughs> now we got we to we twist her arm. Um, so, it, but I mean, on a kind of, I mean, obvious level, right? I, I saw kind of things to do with the way that a document is drafted. And so there's some some really great work on kind of documentary politics, like Chinese politics being document documentary politics. So I would recommend reading uh, a, a scholar called Wu Guoguang, who was um, working on the policy document drafting for a really, really important policy document on political reform back in the 1980s. Um, but who talks about how the drafting process is a political maneuvering process, right? So you can... Um, and, and so working on those documents, I was able to kind of, in some ways, understand much more about how that drafting process of these important documents work. Was there, was there quite a lot of back and forth? Was, was it quite a flexible discussion? People within the party were disagreeing with other people within the party about what the official line should be? Um, so that's not something that I would have been directly party to. But of course, you can see different versions of a document. And so I would see the, the written word, right? Yeah. As opposed to sort of so, to play between. You guys are you guys are are very scholarly and, and serious. I, I wanna know I want to know, did, were you friends with your colleagues? Did you guys like so for example, when I lived and worked in Japan, um part of the, the bonding process was to go out and eat and drink uh, with, you know, and it was sort of in a hierarchical system. Uh, w- did you go out and eat? Did you guys have weekly parties? Did you go over to the houses? Were you invited for dinner? Did you go to sports events? What, what, <laughs> what was it like? You're working with party members and that's got to be fascinating. Yeah, it was, it was not, it was, uh, I was going to say it was, was not a party, but I thought that was, it, that wasn't an <laughs> Small P, so, small P party. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it was, I mean, it was a lot of work. Like most of the, the time was spent on work. Um, and it was a really intense kind of, because I was writing my PhD thesis at the time. So I, mm-hmm. I had a full-time job and, you know, I was doing this work and it was, you know, it also in, in involved a lot of kind of policy um, research, right? And of course, a lot of the policies that are coming out in these documents are new policies. So you've got to kind of be able to be completely literate in all of these different kind of policy spheres to some extent. So so it was a lot of work <laughs> was like the main thing. So it sounds um, like it wasn't a lot of fun. I was I, I I have to say like I was I was definitely friends with the people that I worked with and it was a small team um and not very many 
uh, non-Chinese people working there. So mostly, I I worked mostly on a day-to-day basis with a small team of Chinese translators, like really highly kind of skilled, really incredibly strong kind of skilled Chinese translators, right, is, is who I worked with. And they were, yeah, I mean, of course I was friends with them. Um, mm-hmm. But did I go out for beers with them? <laughs> like, um, no. No. <laughs> okay. That's it. That's all we that's all we wanted to get to was, you know, what what's the beer drinking culture in Beijing among party <laughs> high-level translators? That was really my my goal. And but the, the other thing that I should say, sorry, Misha, but as I was yeah. working there, the the so-called eight-point rules under Xi Jinping came into force, which meant that you are no longer allowed to go out and drink and banquet. Oh, yeah, and yeah. yeah, and this is right. really strict, and it's a really and so this is like actually part of my life was to see how all of that stuff was mm. being put into practice inside of a government body. Right, right the anti-corruption. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's anti-corruption, changing your behavior, anti-smoking. Um, wow. A lot of, yeah. Well, obviously not anti-dissertation writing because you, you completed that, which which is great. Um, and this has just been a fascinating discussion. I, I wish we could, we could go on. Um, obviously, you have seen things that, you know, a lot of folks who work on China haven't. You've seen it from the inside. You've also... Um, taken on a you know an area of research that i think is is really critical for for western policymakers and scholars to understand and to and to be much more sophisticated in their thinking than has hitherto been the case and, and again that's something you point out in in that paper um uh, finding a place for the party which i would i would recommend folks to just google it and and, and look it up um so holly snape thank you so much for joining us on the Pacific Century. And Cindy Yu, the great co-host who kept this show afloat today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Misha. And thank you, Holly. It's been a pleasure to talk. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks so much to both of you for having me. And uh, thanks so much for the very challenging questions. <laughs> uh, it's, that's, that's what we try to do. So for the Pacific Century, I'm Misha Oslin, and we will see you next time. podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.